Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Mad Max Minute, where our salon time always seems to be interrupted by Mad Max to the Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 48, which begins with Max preparing to drive through the Raider camps, and it ends with marauders scrambling to get to their vehicles. So we open today with Max checking his shotgun, which we discussed a little bit yesterday. So he finishes that up and he lays it on the seat next to him. I was struck in this scene of him inside the truck. How unsure he looked of himself and what he was about to do. What's significant about this first shot is that it is so long. It is a good nine seconds out of this minute where it's just a slow zoom on his face. And there are no words. Like we've discussed before, Max doesn't talk to himself. It's just him going through emotions. It Mm -hmm. reminds me a lot of when they were interviewing Mel Gibson in the Road War documentary, and he was talking about that tightrope between being a tough guy and being terrified. The whole idea that in an action movie, you've got to have that persona on your face, but down below the surface, that's where you've got to be secretly terrified. And I think with him being alone, with the exception of Doug, this is his opportunity to really show, holy cow, I'm terrified. I don't know if I'm going to get through this. I think the fact that he is about to make essentially a cannonball run through these raider camps, the reality of the situation is starting to hit him. Exactly what he's about to do and just how insane it is because he's seen firsthand exactly what these guys can do. He was able to fight off a few of them when he had his interceptor and he saw exactly how they treated people who they were able to chase down. The Mack truck is not the interceptor. He knows there's a very good chance that they could stop him. This reminds me of a coping mechanism that I've heard several times all over the place of when you're in a situation of panic or emotional breakdown that you allow yourself a certain amount of time to just show all emotion and just let it pour out and cry your heart out and scream and tantrum and everything all you want. And then when your 10 seconds is up, you're done. Now you cope. Now mm-hmm. you move on and you handle the situation. So I kind of feel like this is Max showing emotion and being worried for five seconds. I think he really doesn't last very long for him. And then he's ready to just cope and get it done. Do what he needs to do. Absolutely. I also notice in this scene that once he looks down at the shotgun and then looks back up to the road, his eyes are on the road the entire time. He puts the shotgun down beside him and his eyes are always on the road in front of him. I think it's a very good use of Mel Gibson's eyes. Oh, absolutely. He's got beautiful eyes and that's one thing that he's known for. He is very aware of the fact that he is about to not only go into the lion's den, but he's wearing a jacket made of raw meat. Yes. He is a huge lumbering target for them and he is very aware of everything they're going to throw at him. But despite that, he still puts the truck in gear. He still 
proceeds forward. And we see him in the next shot pressed down on the clutch and he shifts the truck around and we can see that Dog is sitting there in the floor of the cab right next to him. And Dog looks worried. Yeah. Is that the assessment you would give it? Yeah, I thought he looked sad. I think it's because Dog can sense the mood that Max is in. Dog can sense Max's anxiety. There's a reason that dogs are so often used as empathic treatment animals. I think they called them emotional support animals specifically. Dogs are able to sense when, like, for instance, if someone has really bad PTSD, a dog can sense that coming somehow because, mm -hmm. you know, they have dog senses and they can either push the person into a safer environment, move them out of a situation or get in there and intercede on the person's behalf. There is an amazing video of, I want to say it's someone with severe autism where they physically abuse themselves, where they just get into these physical ticks where they'll start hitting themselves and what the service animal did is the dog saw the person sitting on the ground hitting themselves and the dog put his head kind of in the crook of their arm so that they couldn't bend their arm to hit themselves and oh. the dog just kind of sat there and like cuddled up to them and made sure that they weren't physically able to hurt themselves right until that passed yes. for them offering both a physical barrier and the emotional support of having a warm body right next to you that's very comforting. Yeah. And dogs just are knowing that somebody is there. Dogs are pretty amazing when it comes to that stuff. And I feel like this shot of dog is an example of that, that he can sense Max's worry, his anxiety about what they're about to go through. And dog also knows how Max handles himself. Dog isn't necessarily going to try and sit closer to Max or anything like that. Dog is just going to be there. It's a nice little moment when we're able to peek at Dog before this crazy driving scene. Man, we get a lot of those moments in this movie. Mm -hmm. We've learned a lot about Dog and his relationship with Max. For those audio listeners, which is literally everybody, we just exchanged a knowing look because we know what's going to happen later on in this movie. Yeah. So the next shot we get is the Mac pulling away on the, this dirt road that we stopped at yesterday. It's very symmetrically laid out. The horizon is pretty much in the middle of the shot. The dirt road comes down. The truck is driving straight away from the camera. And we're getting a lot of engine noise from that big old diesel engine. But as the truck gets further away, that engine noise almost has like a slight change to it. And then suddenly swooping down from the top of the frame is the gyrocopter following after Max. It's kind of a surprise for people that are watching for the first time because Max said to the gyro captain, do whatever you want. And we didn't necessarily expect for the gyro captain to follow Max, I would say. I feel like he was like, we're partners, we're partners. But I know first time watching, I wouldn't necessarily expect the gyro captain to go after Max, especially because they cut the line in the screenplay about Max suggesting the gyro captain try going back to the compound. Yeah, I think watching for the first time, I would assume that there was no fuel for the gyrocopter left. That Max had given him just enough to get them from the riverbed to the crash site. Because Gyro Captain was willing and eager to once again abandon his copter and go with Max in the truck. With no prior knowledge of what's going to happen, that would lead me to believe that that was his only option for continuing the adventure. You know, for a movie that's so 
focus on fuel, we haven't yet, nor do I think we do, see anybody actually run out of gas. You know, that's a good point. We've seen people run low on gas, Mm -hmm. and we are aware that gas is a valuable commodity, but I can't think of any situation where we've seen a vehicle actually run out of gas and sputter and roll to a stop. I think they covered that base because of the compound. There is a physical thing, a location that you can point to and be like, well, no one runs out of gas because that's where they're getting their gas. I mean, Max was carrying three extra cans if they were full. It's a whole other thing. But the amount of gas cans that are carried around and that we see, they do a pretty good job of covering bases for those nitpicky people like us. Yeah, (laughs) very good point. But you're right. I don't think we ever see someone actually run out of gas. Especially with the gyrocopter. It's always on my mind. Because it's not like a car where if you run out of gas, you just sputter and roll to a stop. With a gyrocopter, if you run out of gas, you fall out of the sky. You glide out of the sky. There you Correction. go. Correction. <laughs> <laughs> we spent all that time learning about auto rotation. <laughs> you know better. I do. <laughs> Max is driving in the cab of the Mac and... Out his window, the gyrocopter flies by. Max looks, he sees the gyro captain fly by, and he looks back at the road, and he gets into one of those situations where his mouth is open, you can see his teeth, but the corners of his mouth don't curl up. And you look at his eyes, you look at his face, and it's like, okay, he's focused on the road. I know he's focused on the road, but I am projecting onto Max. I want him to be amused at the thought of the gyro captain following him. As much as I want to think that he looks out the window and sees the gyro captain and laughs to himself at the absurdity of this crazy guy on his little (laughs) gyro captain thing. Yeah. He doesn't. No, he doesn't. He's Max. He is just straight-faced Max. Yes. He shows nothing about what he thinks of the captain following him. He's just such a good blank slate that I can throw my... throw my emotions onto. I want him to be amused at the absurdity of it. But he's not. He's focused on the mission. He's very good about that. Next, we come to my favorite scene so far of the entire movie. Really? I think, yes. For a couple of reasons. We start out, we're at the Marauders camp, one of their camps. Mm -hmm. As we get a good look in uh, the next couple of minutes, there are a couple of camps. So we see Wes sitting back to us, getting a shave. Getting his mohawk fixed up real nice. Manscaping. Yes, he's manscaping. First of all, I love the everyday routineness of this scene. This is them when they're not marauding. Right now, they're just people at a camp doing their thing. There's people working on their cars. There's people shacking up in a tent. People getting a haircut. This is just normal, everyday stuff, and I love that. In this shot, we see a total of four marauders. There's Wes, his barber. There is a lady raider sitting on the back of a car, and she's sharpening this axe-looking thing. It kind of looks like it started life as a big old circular saw, and then they cut a big chunk out of it and turned it into an axe of some kind. And then as you zoom in, there is another raider that walks in behind the barber and he's lugging a gas can as he goes. We also see like three or four vehicles and they have some sticks put in the ground with animal skulls on them, almost like they're totem posts. That seems very like them, especially we get more into this minute. We get a good shot of a lot of mohawkers running around. Yep. And there's a lot of Mohawkers. So I love seeing that identity is actually like a clan of people. It's not just a couple of guys 
who like to have mohawks. It is an entire group of people <laughs> who consider themselves a group that stick together and they have talismans, their hair and skulls on pikes and things like that. Wes starts off with his back to the camera and the barber is slowly shaving down the stubble that he's got and we are getting a slow zoom in on Wes and you notice something about his hair. Oh, he's got a mullet. I don't really know a more accurate word to use for it. So his mohawk goes down the center of his head. Yes. And as it reaches, I'd say, what, like the base of the skull? Yeah, I it's would say like the, the neck, base of the skull. But he's got hair that meets the mohawk and then goes out to either side. Yes. It's like they just stopped shaving at a point, and that's just the rest of his hair that they have decided to leave. Yep. And it's black as well to match the red and black from the mohawk. It's weird. Yeah, it's... I don't like it. It it's also, very strange. With his shoulder pads and his feathers, it clutters up his neck. Boys probably don't know what that means. Girls know what that means about okay. cluttering up your neck. So if you have those feathers and then you've got all this hair in the back, like it just feels very intrusive. I'll take your word on that because I've never had hair like that. Thank goodness. You could. You could have You could have a mullet just in the back, like just that, just that back section. That sounds like a terrible idea. It really does. So as Wes is sitting, getting his head shaved, he hears the Mac approaching. I think he's the only one that really does. He whips his head around to look at where the sound is coming. And if you pay attention to the barber and notice how he's holding that knife that he's shaving Wes's head with, he's doing the little shaving strokes. And when Wes whips his head around, he's on one of those strokes where he's not actually in contact with the head. He's kind of making ready to make contact with the head. And good timing on Wes's part, because if he had whipped his head around when he had that knife pressed down to his scalp, he would have put a big old scar around Wes's head. Yeah, that would have been so much blood. It would have been really gross, but that doesn't happen, thankfully. Nope. And Wes spins his head around, and then we get a shot of the Mack truck kind of appearing over a little rise in the landscape. And Wes stands there, and he stares at it. For a good, like, three, four seconds until he realizes that this isn't one of their vehicles. And he lets out, I describe it as an air raid siren scream. He, he kind of, it starts off <laughs> subtle and then just increases in volume until, like, everyone is staring at him. And he rushes into the middle of the camp and he's like, go, go! And he's whipping his arm around and calling everybody to, to action. It's classic Wes. This is the second reason why this scene is my favorite scene in mm -hmm. the movie so far. He absolutely flips out. He throws a little boy tantrum when he realizes that, you know, I assumed that he realized it was Max, but there's no reason to think that he thought it was Max. He doesn't know, nobody knows that Max left the compound. Huh, okay. I feel like my understanding of the scene has changed. Anyways, I just love how he flips out. The important thing about his reaction is not so much that it's Max behind the wheel. The important thing is that this is an uninvited guest. They are driving a rig big enough to haul the fat tank of gas, and they are heading straight towards the compound, and that is something that just cannot happen. And so he knows that they need to stop it. I want him to know that it's Max, so I'm thinking in my head how he could make the connection that that rig is Max. I might have it. I don't know how solid this is. Wes saw Max 
at the wreck site with the rig back a couple of days ago. Does he recognize the rig and put together in his head what has happened? That Max knew where that rig was and he went back for it. And therefore, this is Max coming back to the compound. I think there is a distinct possibility that Wes saw enough of that area because remember, he was up on the hill looking down at Max. It could be that he saw the distinguishing characteristics of the Mack truck for instance, the spray paint on the side, and mm -hmm. the exhaust pipes and everything. So that couple of seconds that he's taking to look at the truck is him noticing some of those distinguishing characteristics and then realizing where it came from and then possibly connecting it back to Max because they did kind of see each other across the field when Humongous was addressing the compound. I think Wes was able to see Max sitting up on top of that wall in the oh. compound. Oh, definitely. So it might be that he's putting the pieces together in his head as he's staring at this truck. Maybe that's why he stares at it for three or four seconds. Could be. They might see each other again once he gets the truck into the compound. I don't remember. We're going to have to cover that when we get to it. As he's whipping the camp into a frenzy, Wes calls for a mount and a motorcycle arrives with a little sidecar on it. According to MadMaxMovies.com, their vehicle page for Road Warrior, the motorcycle here that pulls up and Wes hops on is a Yamaha XS1100E. Someone at MadMaxMovies.com tracked down the origin of the sidecar, and I don't know if they called the person who previously owned it or they got an email from the person who personally owned it, but... On their website, there's actually a little blurby from the guy who sold it to the prop master for Mad Max 2, and I could read out what that person said, but it would probably sound a lot better if an actual Australian read it. Um, Hey, Brad. Yeah, Rick. What's up? Could you read this for me real quick? Sure. I had it on my Yamaha 650 Special, but didn't like it as I found it hard to get used to. So I advertised it for sale in 1981. I lived in Double Bay, Sydney then. The bloke that come around introduced himself as a prop spy for Mad Max too, and that it would be in the movie. However, you can't really recognise it, as they must have taken the fiberglass body off and modified it with a platform someone could stand on. Thanks, Brad. And then, of course, as Wes rides away with this other Mohawker that's actually driving the motorcycle, we pass by a little raider that I have nicknamed Chekhov, and Chekhov is working on his mid-century Chevy tow truck. We'll uh, run into him again tomorrow. One of the side effects of cutting up a movie minute by minute is that everything feels so much more spaced out. So in my notes, when I saw the guy under the truck and I knew what was going to happen to him, I saw it as this great foreshadowing that down the road something was going to happen not realizing when i went and prepped the next minute minute 49 that it happens immediately it's not a you show the person underneath the tow truck in act one and then by act three something happens to them no it's all in the same act it's all in the same scene it's just we're weirdos and we cut it up all strange <laughs> yeah <laughs> after wes on the sidecar of the motorcycle drives out of camp. We pass Chekhov underneath his truck. The last thing we see this minute, the last three seconds or so, is one of the bad cops running up to his car to get into it. The bad cop is wearing your standard leather jacket, chrome dome helmet, face mask, crod piece, everything like that. And of course, it's covered in studs because that's part of the bad cop uniform, I guess. Metal studs everywhere. And it got me thinking, just how far removed are metal studs in leather from bedazzling beads on denim? Sure, they're kind of in the same family as far as putting embellishments in a material 
for wear. And yeah, they serve very different purposes. But aside from them being like distant cousins, I feel like they could almost be like step siblings. Yes. And I know this is just working from memory and a childhood in the 80s that bedazzlers, yeah, you could do like rhinestones and stuff like that, but you could also do metal looking like a metal finish spike. Really? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I never bedazzled myself. I never participated in the action of bedazzling. I think the largest saving grace for the metal stud in leather is that it does offer a modicum of extra protection. It's an extra element to the leather that reinforces it and makes it more durable. And that's definitely not something that you get out of something that's been bedazzled. Yes, it's an extra layer of something, but it's a very different purpose. Just the style of metal studded leather, it makes me think of bedazzled denim. The metal studs on leather, like the real legit metal studs on leather, how are they attached? Is it prongs that poke through the leather and then are bent inwards to grip and hold it in place? I think so. Yeah, that's the same as a bedazzler. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they're the same thing. I'm currently looking up the history of the bedazzler. I feel a little vindicated in my supposition now. Oh, yeah. I think you're totally vindicated. Yeah. Okay, the bedazzler first appeared in the 1970s, which is much older than I thought. So I looked up how a bedazzler works to confirm that it's like the same thing as the actual studs. It does seem a little bit different. All the information I could find gets a little vague once it comes down to like actually what is happening when you push down the mechanism, but theirs involves a backing, so there's a piece on either side of the fabric. This is where it gets vague. They connect in some way. You push down, <laughs> it's like a stapler, you push down on it and they're connected. Okay. So I don't really know, but I think the principles are probably about the same. Okay. Something must come from the rhinestone side and grip onto the backing plate. That took way too much research, by the way. We had to pause the recording for a couple of minutes that should have been an easily Googleable thing, and it wasn't. Googleable. It's <laughs> a funny word. <laughs> She's ruining the magic. She's giving you all the behind the scenes stuff. <laughs> the bad cop's also wearing a mesh shirt. Mesh shirts are bold choices, fashion wise, I'm sure. Probably related to the BDSM shop shopping spree that they did for this movie. No, oh, that's the 80s. Really? Yeah, I don't think they got that shirt in the BDSM shop. I'll take your word for it. I don't think they got it at a department store. Yeah. It's the 80s. This minute was mostly just ramping up to action. We got Max stealing himself. We got Wes realizing what was going on. We are going to jump right in tomorrow with the start of an action scene that is pretty much going to last all the way through into next week. That'll be fun. We haven't had a really good, exciting action sequence since the opener, have we? You know, I don't think we have. We've had little hints, like we watched the scout buggy get raided from afar, and that's kind of it. Yeah, no, nothing as exciting as what's about to happen has happened in quite some time. Hooray. <laughs> it's going to be fun. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy. 
and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 48 of the Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.